Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The Environmental Protection Agency recently launched a new office dedicated to environmental justice and civil rights. EPA Administrator Michael Regan says the 200-person office was needed to elevate the fight for overlooked communities who are too often left vulnerable to pollution, contamination, or what one of our guests today calls food apartheid. There are plans to distribute $3 billion in grant money to communities in need. Today, we dig into the issues of environmental justice, or EJ. What are the environmental injustices where we live, and who's pushing for change? How are EJ advocates feeling right now? One luminary in this field joins us, Sharon Lewis. She's the executive director for the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sharon. Hey, you're quite welcome. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sharon, you've been a local trailblazer on the EJ front, working through the coalition with many, many different state committees on environmental and health. What do you think people misunderstand most about the term environmental justice and how it's applied? Well, for me, there are four major things that people misunderstand. Number one, that environmental justice is a result. And by that, I mean that environmental justice occurs when everyone shares equally in the benefits and the burdens of the environment. And when those impacted take lead in developing solutions for the problems where they live, work, and recreate. Uh, Number two, that it only affects uh, low-income communities of color. It's not low-income communities of color. It's low-income and communities of color because race, not income, is the primary factor for when undesirable land uses are cited. For example, I grew up in an affluent African-American community of doctors, lawyers, judges, teachers, business people, and yet we were surrounded by all types of negative environmental land uses. I-95 exit uh, and on-ramp. We had, um, that that was within walking distance of our homes. We had uh, railroad tracks and trains coming through all the time. We lived near the North Harford landfill and all sorts of other types of uh, industries that polluted the air, the water, and the land. Uh, number three is that it Uh, does not affect white people, and it does. Environmental injustices do affect low-wealth white people. And I I like to replace the word low-income with low-wealth because it is the low-wealth people who are impacted by environmental injustices uh, just as much as black people are. And number four, the number one, uh, number one, number four reason is that it's not just about pollution. Everyone thinks that environmental, the environmental justice movement is about pollution only, and that is not true. 
Well, we're going to be talking about something that certainly is not what you just said, the pollution aspect of environmental justice. And not only do you carry part of the burden of being with groups that helps with solution making, you're also experiencing this firsthand now. You've been living in a hotel since a sewage overflow flooded your home in the north end of Hartford in early December. And the EPA has since agreed to investigate the longer standing sewage issues in the area and has attended one of two listening sessions with residents and advocates. Just want to emphasize extra so that we're so grateful that you're able to join us this morning. Can you talk to us about your experience so far and what are your hopes at this stage? Well, first of all, it's very difficult for me to talk about it because for the first time in my life, I'm actually feeling this personally. And uh, because I do this professionally as well, it's very hard to separate, very, very hard. On December 4th, when I had the sewage back up in my basement, I pretty much lost, I did lose everything that was down there, lots of valuable things. But since then, my entire house reeks of sewage and whatever else I smell. And my house is unlivable because of broken water pipes due to the freezing uh, Christmas week. So I, I truly do understand what people are going through. I'm feeling the pain, as they say. And it's very frustrating because no one really wants to hear about it. No one understands it. A lot of people have been suffering in silence for years. Who wants to advertise that they have other people sewage in their basement? Nobody. It's a very difficult situation. In fact, I call it the water crisis that no one either knows about or cares about. Um, getting back to your question about the listening sessions, uh, there were listening sessions, but there are always listening sessions, and very little comes about as a result of these listening sessions. So um, because I'm suffering um, personally, I'm pretty much without hope. And we spoke with a Metropolitan District Commission spokesperson, and it's the MDC, which is a nonprofit municipal corporation that oversees water and sewage in Hartford and 11 surrounding towns and cities. The spokesperson said um, that pending the EPA's findings, it's their opinion that this is a private property issue. What's your response to that, Sharon? I'm very angered by that because um, Soon after I testified at the uh, first community meeting, the uh, CEO of the NDC, Scott Jellison, sent an email to all the commissioners, all the press, and the mayor, and all the different politicians, basically stating that what I said was wrong. He stated that the sewage backup was my own personal sewage, and that I had a root ball that jammed up the system. Problem is, his own MDC folks came out and said that there was no root ball and that's impossible for one person to have that much sewage. And even if that was true, even if it was my own um, sewage, how do you explain that while I was away in New Jersey for a day, three to five, four, three to five more feet of water backed up into my basement? I wasn't even home. No toilet was flushed. No sink ran. And in addition to that, the MDC was supposed to turn my water off. So if my water was turned off, how do you account for all that water coming back into my basement? I'm very angered over the fact that they're spinning it to be my problem. I'm very um, intimidated by this and threatened by this. It's very scary 
that something like this would come from the mouth or the pen of a CEO. I find his statements about me to be very unbecoming of not only a CEO, but of anyone, because clearly he did not even check with his own people. So we're going to hear more of the latest from them when we check in with the Harvard Current social justice and race reporter Deidre Montague in just a moment. Um, you've mentioned that this is a water crisis. You're a part of it. And you had also already been working on a water justice campaign in Hartford before this happened. Can you share with us uh, what that looks like? Yeah, we were. And it's so ironic because over a year ago, we had started talking to people about uh, sewage, actually sewage flooding more than sewage backup. And I was extolling the virtues of the sewer backflow valve that NBC installed in my basement for 30 years ago, never knowing that my system had already failed and that my basement was filling up with water on a daily basis. So we were talking to people, finding out, you know, what was actually happening, listening to them talk about the uh, disrespect from some of the social service agencies, the fact they felt frustrated with not knowing who to go to for help, um, having a serious financial burden with regard to paying plumbers, most of them uh, disreputable, and um, other folks to clean up their living quarters, uh, not understanding the illnesses that several people in their families experienced. the stories are very sad, and uh, I just found myself a year later to be in the exact situation. And where so our, does... Our water ca- I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go for it, go for it. Our water campaign now is um, pretty much based on sewage backup, and we're talking to people and getting their stories. We're organizing lo- local residents to uh, shine a light on this environmental justice uh, we want to share uh, their stories with policymakers and, and raise awareness of the health and economic challenges of these sewer discharges as well as flooding. And we also want to advocate for bringing the infrastructure money to Connecticut, the federal money that's uh, uh, supposed to help EJ communities, but we want them to prioritize water infrastructure upgrades. In addition to that, we're talking to people about how to access financial resources, and insurance coverages. Uh, one of the biggest um, problems I had was my issue was an uninsured occurrence because I did not have sewer backup coverage, which I did not know existed. Well, there are so many issues here that are very much interconnected. And the fact that you yourself are having this harrowing experience, how has it shaped the way you think about environmental justice advocacy? Has it changed anything? Is there anything that you're reprioritizing? You know, what are your thoughts? Well, because it's hitting me personally, it's lit an extreme fire underneath me. Um, I am overwhelmed with trying to not only handle my own personal issues, but people have called me in the middle of the night because it's amazing how many people are now wanting to talk about it. Um, My only fear is I feel that I'm too old now. You know, I don't have uh, the ability physically to do what I did when I was 30 years younger, but uh, I guess I'll fight until I die because uh, this is amazing. And I'm kind of sad in a way because I don't think I ever really understood what people were going through until I'm faced with the situation now. I've lost everything, and that's a hard pill to swallow. 
fact, I don't even, I, I can't even accept that. I, I tell myself it's not true. Well, we, we appreciate you even more so for being able to or being willing to open up your story with us and perhaps it will resonate with listeners and perhaps other people who are also suffering through the same experiences. And, you know, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but in what ways do the way we categorize demographics um, that fail us in ways that we frame these issues. For example, you mentioning low income should really be low wealth. Uh, what do we think about those terms and and uh, what can we do to, to, to be better? Well, you know, it all gets down to race. And uh, when you say low income, automatically the world thinks black. And uh, when you talk about environmental justice, automatically people think black people. And um, black people don't matter in this, this United States. In this, and we all know that and we should accept that. Um, so um, when it occurs to only black people in your mind, that's something that doesn't involve you, something you don't care about, something you don't want to know about. It only makes you interested when it happens to you. In fact, um, I love to read biographies and autobiographies of people, and I recently read a biography of someone who said, justice only happens when those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. And my entire life, I've been trying to get those unaffected to be outraged, no matter who it affects, black, white, or whatever. When I think what you just and described... And by the way, the person who said that was Benjamin Franklin. Nice attribution. We always need to attribute to our quotes and the people that we read. Thank you for that, Sharon. Uh, when what you were just describing gets a lot of attention, a lot of outrageous attention, in fact, in, in our days of having a lot of information exposure. But that also leads to news headline scrolling and sometimes the attention span is very short. For example, we know organizers in Flint, Michigan are still rallying for solutions to the city's water crisis. And it can feel like sometimes we're just scrolling past the headlines. How can we ensure that we're more meaningfully engaging with any given issue and staying with it and seeing it through? You know, what can we do when it comes to environmental justice? Well, I think that the first thing we need to do is learn our history and understand, we, we, a lot of us type, uh, tend to quote the uh, civil rights movement, but oftentimes they, they don't do it correctly. It's not just about being in the streets. It's not just about having the headlines, because we all know that, you know, the powers that be look at their watches and say, okay, in 15 minutes, we should all be over. Let's just sit back and let them scream and holler. But what they don't understand of the civil rights movement is, there were people in the streets, Martin Luther King et al., but then there were people behind the scenes changing policies, and there were people forming coalitions of all types of people. We don't know that, and I often say we, we tend to forget that, but I realize we don't know that, and we need to understand uh, what made the civil rights movement so successful. And if we follow that, we'll understand that it'll work. But I learned many years ago that... Um, Legislation doesn't change how people think. So therein lies 
the root of my hopelessness, how do we change how people think? Well, and here to help us understand the situation better is Deidre Montague. She's the social justice and race reporter for the Hartford Current, who has been covering this issue. Thanks so much, Deidre, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you were at these listening sessions, and the second of which the federal EPA did. Can you walk us through some of uh, what was said during these listening sessions? Sure. Um, so um, overall, you know, residents were definitely sharing their frustration and sorrow when describing the flood damage that has impacted their homes. The residents collectively um, have said that they felt unheard by some elected officials and the MDC for a long time. And they ultimately want this issue to, they said they ultimately want this issue to be solved. Um, and they're tired of the finger pointing, um, especially between um, the city and the state and the MDC. Um, they just want this situation solved. And there were some holdups on the EPA's arrival in Hartford um, with one January inspection postponed because of unexpected publicity. And one of the EPA spokesperson confirmed with us that the, the agency has completed those inspections and is now working with the State Department of Environmental and Production, saying that they're actively reviewing and investigating the causes of the sewage um, or of the sewer overflows in the sewer system that's maintained and operated by the Metropolitan District Commission. And so with that in mind, we know Sharon and other community members are still waiting for an update. Do you know if there's any new updates or are there any next steps? Um, I, I don't know of any new updates. Um, you know, the EPA has definitely said the, the same things in my conversations with them is that um, they are still investigating and they are still um, doing that work. Um, and so we are all, I believe, and especially, well, I believe the residents are really waiting for those results and hoping those results will become actions. And this is a rather related question, but do we know how many homes are affected? Um, because an MDC spokesperson also told us that they don't have a firm number in particular after the, the listening sessions gave them some new information. Do you know any, um, are you aware of any actual numbers? I'm not aware of any actual numbers either. Um, however, the rooms were quite packed um, during both listening sessions. And Sharon, we've got about a minute left, but I do want to ask, you know, do you have any final thoughts or any reactions to what Deidre just shared with us? Uh, well, my only final fact is that the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental and Economic Justice is trying to get those numbers. We're actually going door to door to uh, talk to people and interview them and try to find out how serious this issue is. Well, you've been listening to Sharon Lewis. She's the executive director of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice. We wanna thank you so much for your time and your insights and sharing your story with us today, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. After a short break, we will continue to have Hartford Current social justice and race reporter Deidre Montague breaks, helps us break down this long-standing issue in Hartford's North End. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we've been exploring the issue of environmental justice. Many advocates are focused on longstanding flooding and sewage issues that have been building up in Hartford's North End and calling the lack of long-term solutions environmental racism. In a statement to the Hartford Current that followed the EPA's promise to investigate, Senator Richard Blumenthal promised action, saying the federal government should be enlisted to put its money where its mouth is. He called this a really severe environmental travesty. And here to give us more background on this is Deidre Montague. She's the social justice and race reporter for the Hartford Current, and she's been following this issue very closely. Thanks for joining us, Deidre. Thank you for having me. Let us know if you have any questions or comments, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Adidra, what have we heard from the Metropolitan District Commission so far? So really what we've heard is that um, the chair, chair, um, William DeBella, believes that many of these issues are private property, and so they don't have... Um, any responsibility or any authority over these flooding issues that are happening on private property. And because they've already invested billions into trying to, you know, separate these sewers or making these sewers better, do you have any thoughts on that, on what's that like? I can say for sure. Um, I know residents are really frustrated with that answer. Um, I, I did forget to mention as well that Tabella also said that the stormwater is a big issue as well um, and the dramatic change of the environment, which their systems were not designed for. Um, but residents, as you would, as you could imagine, are not very satisfied with that answer as many of them are stuck with the high costs of having to repair in these damages um, from flood and sewage issues. Um, at one of the listening se- sessions, there was one resident who was thankful um, to get some support from her insurance, but if she files another claim um, in regards to this issue, um, she will be um, losing her insurance. And so Mayor Luke Bronin's office has also weighed in on the need for an infrastructure overhaul. You know, what are you hearing from his office? Sure. Um, so uh, and we're hearing pretty much that he, Mayor Bronin is saying that the sewer systems were built more than a century ago um, and it's an ancient system um, and, you know, that the work that's going on um, is to separate the sewer from the um, 
the storm sewer. So when there's flooding, it doesn't back up and put sewage back. Um, however, during the listening session, he really wanted um, to make clear that the problem is that the MDC's clean water money um, and funding, it can only be spent on the separation of the, the sewer, um, but it can't be spent to ultimately build a storm sewer system that's actually capable of handling the amount of water that the city is getting. And this, the mayor uh, Bronin's office have maintained that this issue is not unique to the north end of Hartford and also plagues the west end. And we have been talking about how these are longstanding issues for many communities beyond the ones we've just been talking about. Um, have you heard anything from his office thinking about these outdated systems, especially when we're thinking about environmental justice or environmental racism? Um, we haven't personally. I, I do know that the city of Hartford, you know, they have during the summer um, flooding in 2021, um, amid the outcry of residents and small businesses, they did roll out a 500,000 grant program to help repair damages um, caused by those heavy rainstorms in summer of 21 that flooded streets and basements and backed up sewers. That money has been dispersed. Um, and residents at the listening sessions were thankful um, for those who were able to receive a grant. Um, but they said it is only a band-aid to the solution um, to a long-term issue. Right. And this might be a little early, but have you heard um, from anyone in terms of any attempts at short or longer-term fixes by the city or the state? Um, I haven't really heard too much about long-term fixes, um, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, I really haven't heard of any as of now. Yeah, that, and that's okay. That's the exact update that we want to hear about. And also just want to share that Connecticut Public's Patrick Scahill spoke with Joan Facey last August. The basement of her home on Albany Avenue was flooded with raw sewage from June through October of 2021 due to what she says was an improperly cut pipe when a nearby property was demolished. So want to clarify that this is a separate issue from the storm-related flooding that many people experienced that fall, but let's take a listen to what Joan has to say. And it is so sad because all we happened to be was an innocent neighbor. Whatever happened there, they are responsible because they were in charge of everything and never did what they need to do. Do you imagine if this was West Hartford? You think this could ever happen? I'm not even talking about Greenwich. I'm just saying this year, They'll try to do it in our neighborhood and expect to get away with it. It never should have happened and it should not be happening. Not because. And they need to take responsibility. What are they going to wait until the place come down and they come and... It's not about the money. What we created here, we created for ourselves. It's no city money, no We did everything out of our pocket having those places there. And for them to come, make their mistake, and don't want to be responsible for it, it's unacceptable. I'm sorry. And I don't care whether it was black, white, or blue. It, no human being supposed to be in that situation because of somebody else's mistake. 
Patrick Scahill says the case is complicated involving the Hartford Land Bank, private property owners, and the MDC. Deidre, can you touch on Joan's testimony and her mentioning West Hartford as a contrast? Are her feelings similar to what was shared in the listening sessions that you were in? Yes, um, I believe she was one of the ones that um, spoke during the during one of the listening sessions, and um, it definitely she definitely was sharing that same outrage um, and that that same anger um, toward her situation. Um, you know, she was saying that she has a restaurant just sitting there that she's not able to use and. Um, is really um, during the listening session was asking um, the officials that were there, the MDC officials, and I believe Senator Blumenthal, where is her justice for that? Um, and how, where is she going to get the funding of $8,000 to sanitize and repair um, for her to work in that building again? Well, then you mentioning, you know, where is the justice in this, you know, in, in your mind, especially because you've been covering this, how do you think this fits into the conversation about or around environmental justice? Um, I've, I for sure see it as, you know, residents are angry. Um, they have stated that this has been happening for decades um, and they have not seen any traction or any real fixes surrounding that. Um, and I believe that's how it fits in is that um, residents have said that they are unhappy um, and they feel like they've been unheard um, for a very, very long time. You've been listening. Oh, thank you so much for that, Deidre. You've been listening to Deidre Montague. She's a social justice and race reporter for the Hartford Current who has been following this issue very closely. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your experience with us today, Deidre. Thank you for having me again. Thank you. Coming up next, we're joined by Kat Morris. She's a local scholar and activist for the intersectional environmental justice. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're exploring the issue of environmental justice, or EJ, hearing from local advocates pushing for change. Joining me now is Kat Morris. She's a scholar and activist for intersectional environmental justice and the founder of Seaside Sounds Club. That's an environmental justice club or group that is behind the new music festival of the same name. Thanks, Kat, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful for the invitation. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kat, before we hear about how you discovered environmental justice, can you tell us how would you define environmental justice? Mm. I would define environmental justice as equal access to an experience of a healthy environment. And by environment, I mean that socially, um, institutionally and structurally, uh, but also in terms of your natural environment. Mm. 
it means not having disproportionate exposure to toxins. It means not having disproportionate exposure to um, structural violence. And yeah, it means having access to healthy foods, healthy living, and, you know, being able to thrive under your current conditions without needing an overhaul in the, yeah, in the circumstances that you face. And you're an intersectional EJ scholar and activist, and I think intersectionality is a very important term. How would you define it in this context, Context, and why is it important to have that as a part of what you study? Yeah, so my understanding of intersectionality comes directly from legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term, and her work follows three specific pillars of intersectionality. So structural intersectionality um, in terms of addressing the unequal access to opportunity and resources, representational intersectionality um, in terms of, you know, acknowledging how very specific narratives and images um, about marginalized people can then create stereotypes and how that impacts people's daily lives. And then political intersectionality, which kind of relates more to how they can be competing uh, political agendas based on your identities. And the way I kind of turn that into action is by focusing on intersectional activism and collaborative organizing, um, but doing it with love. And for me, love is an acronym. Uh, well, love is an action in general, but I use love as an acronym form. So listening to learn, organizing with an open mind, valuing a variety of perspectives, and engaging everyone in every way possible. One, well, I love how all of that is very much interconnected, like many of the things that we've been talking about today. And I know you touched about this a little bit, but I just wonder if you can help us understand better how are issues like energy and food access, um, how are they tied up in intersectional environmental justice? Yeah, so when you think about the energy sources or energy plants that we now recognize as being major contributors to air pollution and therefore greenhouse gas emissions and climate change at large. I like to kind of just point out the fact that if something is bad for the entire planet, right, if something can destroy the ozone layer of the entire planet, it's certainly destroying your lungs. It's certainly harming your lungs. And so a lot of my focus is on the health inequities associated with or resulting from environmental racism. And let's tying back to Hartford, since we were talking about Hartford, um, by the way, thank you, Sharon, for sharing your story. When we think about the future that we're moving towards with respect to energy, um, a lot of advocates are rallying for the Sedeca plant to be, which is now purchased by the state and referred to as the capital area system to become a source of clean energy. So like a non-polluting source of energy. The reason we need that is because a variety of air pollutants that come from um, energy plants that, you know, pollute the air with nitrogen oxide, fine particulate matter and volatile organic compounds, they all interact with each other and then create a form of ground level ozone, which is another air pollutant in itself. Uh, and that results in lung irritation, symptoms and disease, um, wheezing, asthma, as, ex, 
exacerbation, so increased rates of asthma attacks, um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, heart disease, low birth rate, um, lung cancer, premature mortality, etc. And on top of that, we then know that, you know, long-term pollution can then, from various sources like energy plants um, or waste to energy incinerators uh, or other types of polluting facilities can then disrupt the um, ecology of that area. So if you have soil that's too polluted to grow food on, now we're perpetuating food insecurity and nutrition insecurity. So when we consider how the decisions we're making affect um, our lives and, and the health of humans, animals, and the environment, we have to be aware of that at every level, um, you know, institutionally and infrastructurally. This then kind of, and it, there's so many layers to it, um, because then, you know, when we consider the areas that are most likely to have these pollution sources in Connecticut, that would be Bridgeport, Hartford, um, Waterbury, uh, New Haven, New London, and Stanford as well. These areas are also most likely to have people of color. So something like 71% of all people of color in Connecticut live in those areas. So we have disproportionate exposure to these environmental pollutants, these polluting facilities. The resulting necessarily barren land. And we also have policies that have made it harder for folks to have access to the resources that they need, um, partially in relation to redlining. Um, we have the housing issues that then leave people more vulnerable to issues like combined sewer overflows. But it's interesting if you map, um, you can map major pollutant sources onto redlining maps, but you can also track that at the same time the redlining happened, at the same time that white flight happened, um, as it's deemed as white folks left kind of urban areas and created what is now the suburbs, grocery stores went with them. So we don't have land that we can grow healthy food on, and we don't have grocery stores that we can buy healthy food from. All these things combine and they perpetuate different health issues because not only do you have an, an excess of bad sources, um, things are bad for your health, but you have a dearth or a lack of things that are good for your health and that are protective. They can even like healthy foods, iron rich foods, vitamin C and calcium. All of that can help prevent the absorption of lead in your body. We know that Connecticut, particularly the same areas that I just mentioned, they have a lot of lead poisoning issues since it's an old state or old houses, there's lead-based paint. Um, so I just said a lot, <laughs> I just said a lot of different things, but I did that just to show you how interconnected every facet of these issues are and that responding to that intentionally is intersectional environmental justice in a nutshell. Well, I think I think that's the the key to this, right? You mentioning so many things, but it allows us to see or hear rather that they are so interconnected with whether or not we realize that, you know, you talking about the interactions between plants and the climate, it leads to the pollution that impacts all of our health and the disruption in ecology and housing. 
And I do want to touch on the fact that you use the term food apartheid instead of food desert very deliberately here. And we were talking about how if you don't have good ecology, good environment, then you're not going to be able to grow food that's good for our health. Can you explain why you chose to use the term food apartheid so deliberately? Yeah, I'm really intentional about using that and moving away from food deserts because, you know, when you break down the two words, a desert, we understand that it's barren and desolate. However, deserts are naturally occurring. They, no one did that. <laughs> no one decided, okay, this is now a desert. <laughs> Here we are. Whereas apartheid specifically acknowledges how policies and institutions are in fact the source of the lack of food access, the lack of um, nutritional access. That that intentionality and that accuracy really is super important um, for how we perceive these issues uh, so that we know that they're not naturally occurring and therefore they are solvable. And the context of the solutions has to be in the form of policy um, and programmatic action. Well, and then speaking of solution and action, uh, can you talk to us about the scholarship side of your work and some of the research that you've done in helping you identify some of these interconnectedness and overlaps? Yeah, so my background um, as a scholar activist, which is really just being nerdy and loud, um, I started with, you know, cognitive science is my background, cognitive science and anthropology. So that really makes me very focused on people and culture um, and policy and those interactions. So as I started moving into the professional field, I first learned about um, not only just the policy making process, the legislative process, but also how do we acknowledge the ways in which barriers to the political process are um, perpetuating these inequities, right? Very specific barriers to how people of color, low-income people have access to political power um, reduces their ability to change their circumstances. When I worked for the EPA, that's when I learned about the, you know, lead poisoning very specifically um, and how you can actually reduce lead absorption in your body and kind of somewhat mitigate the um, very permanent impact that lead poisoning has on the um, mental and physical health of children. When I worked for the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice and Health, a lot of our work is kind of focused on vehicular emissions and how or our research is focused on vehicular emissions and engaging in community-based participatory research to see not only how people are kind of perceiving the issue, um, but also if you're walking down the street and you can do this research using really cool kind of gadgets that are just like tracking air quality, you can walk down the street and actually track um, the levels of air pollution that one is, uh, you know, exposed to and kind of figuring out, okay, where are the clusters of that and how are they impacting very um, specific populations of people? Part of that uh, can look like, of course, if you have schools and such on major street areas, if you have anything, any type of homes or establishments near 
um, what are they called, highways, <laughs> um, you are going to face the increased exposure and therefore you have uh, the disproportionate health impacts that are associated with that. I've also moved more towards very much studying how the ecology of our work is focused on um, sorry, how the ecology, human, and animal health are very much linked, and that how we interact with the climate issues that we have now will set the stage for future generations um, in the form of just having present-day impacts that are either solution-oriented or stagnant and perpetuating issues. So for instance, how are we kind of responding to the climate refugee crisis? How are we um, mitigating environmental policies associated with that? But also how are we acknowledging the way that climate change is disproportionately affecting very specific clusters of people? Um, and therefore, once their ecosystems are shifted, you know, following the chain of events in terms of how that's going to map on across the world, uh, well, and I think you mentioned so much of, of the work includes, you know, breaking the barriers, increasing access and mitigation and policy, but a lot of that also leads to burnout. Uh, we just heard from Sharon Lewis, who is the executive director of the Connecticut Coalition for Environmental Justice, who shared feelings of burnout and questions she has now how meaningfully she's able to engage with the communities she's trying to serve through the coalition. You know, what are your thoughts of that, uh, Kat? You're on the ground, you're doing this every day. I can imagine a lot of the experiences that you're going through can be really tough. You know, what do you think about what Sharon shared and what are your own experiences with that? Yeah, um, <laughs> it's real, burnout is real. And we're, we're learning more about how that looks at a broader level, but as an individual, um, I can say that I felt chronically burnt out. Um, and I've been reflecting inward on what that means for me. Um, just to take it back a step, I'd say that, you know, it's not a surprise that Sharon has dedicated her life to environmental justice would we experience that because you know so much of our culture as per capitalism has made us to believe that our productivity our productivity matters above all else right you're only as valuable as the backbreaking um work that you can produce and when you kind of engage with the world as an activist you are essentially being a giver you are giving your support giving your expertise um giving your time and your energy and your resources to helping other people um, and to kind of addressing these major issues, which requires so much, right? Um, it's a lifetime of work, or it can be a lifetime of work, and it takes great systems of support that many people don't have. Many people don't have it. Um, if they And if they do have it, oftentimes your friends are also environmentalists or they're also activists and they're also burnt out, right? Because they're doing the same work maybe in different parts, but we're all going to the same meetings and, you know, again, feeling burnt out mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually, it, it's prompted me to reflect inward on how I want to show up in the world. And 
I know that my purpose is to contribute to the healing of our planet. I have one community at a time, but I want to spend my time channeling my energy towards exploring, highlighting, supporting, and innovating creative climate solutions around the world. And I have to figure out how I can do that in a way that's sustainable um, externally, but also internally. Well, us talking about interconnectedness, that is very much connected. So thank you very much for sharing that experience with us. And we only have a couple minutes left, but I do want to touch on, um, Kat, you went to Bassick High School in Bridgeport. Mm-hmm. How was that experience central to your understanding of environmental justice and to the founding of Seaside Sounds? Yeah, so I went to Bassick High School um, and it was really a transformative experience really to move to Bridgeport. Um, and go to a school where people actually look like me. Um, the thing is, once I got there, uh, and I was, you know, filled with this excitement and destroying this gratitude to share my culture with other folks, I was also very quickly inundated with the realities of systemic racism, and environmental racism specifically. So that looked like me being thrown off by the amount of police that were in my school. Um, also the amount of pollution that was in the air and stigmatization about the natural environment. I'm I'm a tree hugger. I'm a nature girly. And so I would love to spend time at Seaside Park. When I got to Seaside Park, when I started, you know, diving into the culture, I realized that there was so much stigma against swimming in the water. Um, and a lot of that came from the fact that there is an excessive amount of pollution that can often go into Seaside Park. Again, tying it back to Sharon's water crisis, when you have combined sewer overflows, the water is not just going to reverse itself back into the sewer system. No, it's going to then, um, especially part with flooding, it's going to then become runoff or stormwater runoff and go into bodies of water, go into um, the ground. Well, so uh, that would happen at Seaside Park. And that kind of led me to wanting to advocate for environmental justice in Bridgeport while also you know, showcasing the beauty that the city has, the nature of the natural environment, the blue of the park. So I created these five sounds for environment. Well, thank you so much, Kat, for sharing that with us. We're going to have to end there. You've been listening to Kat Morris, and um, I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our techno producer is Kat Pastor. Download wherever you live anytime, and thank you so much for listening.